Um, so, hey again, uh, I didn't get to introduce myself the first time. My name's Austin, if it's your first time here, I get to serve here as one of our lead pastors. And if you're new here, man, we are so glad to have you here at the Vista. Again, Vista is not this building, it's, it's these people all around you. And we hope that you feel loved, welcomed, and wanted, that you fit right in and feel at home here at the Vista. So we uh, today are entering the home stretch, just a few weeks left in our series called Reading Romans Backwards. And I really do hope that the series has been a reminder of just how remarkable a thing the Bible really is. And because just think about it, how remarkable is it that 2,000 years ago, this ancient man named Paul, that this ancient man who, who thought the earth was flat, who didn't have Instagram, who had never tasted Chick-fil-A for God's sake, this man wrote down uh, you know, he had a quill in his hand. Have you ever seen one write with a quill? No, I've never even seen a quill, I don't think, in my entire life. He sits down, and with a quill in his hand, he writes this letter on a piece of parchment to these ancient Christians of this ancient city and an ancient culture, and yet here we are, right? We modern people, all of our modern things, our cars and our Bitcoin and our spaceships and going to the moon and who knows what else. Well, here we are, modern people, finding ourselves so understood, so challenged, so comforted, by an ancient letter written by an ancient man because it testifies to the relentless faithfulness of our ancient and eternal God, amen? I know it's so easy to take your Bible for granted, but don't take it for granted just because you have it on your phone and 30 copies lying around your house. Don't take your Bible for granted. Today, we come to chapter six in the letter. And I really like chapter six, and I think you're gonna like it too because in chapter six, Paul, he just kinda, he just rolls up his sleeves a little bit and he just tells us what to do. And does anybody else appreciate it when from time to time somebody just gets real direct with you and they just tell you what to do? Anybody else? I like it because there's a time and place for you know, giving people room for interpretation, for being subtle and suggestive and all these other things. That's great. There's a space for that. But there's also a time and place for just being told what you need to do. I remember when we had our, our first child, I was trying desperately to not let Allison know how unfit of a, a father she had married. And so I was really trying to be helpful, but it's this weird thing. Newborn dads, you're gonna know what I'm talking about, where you so desperately wanna be helpful, but there's just all this stuff about caring for newborn babies that you just don't know, and you don't know how the moms know it. You don't know if they take a class somewhere. You don't know if it's just hereditary knowledge that gets passed down, just exists in the ether, and the moms absorb it. I don't know how they know it, but they just know how to do all this stuff that we don't know what to do. So uh, my oldest son is a few, few days old. My wife asked me if I can go make him a bottle. I'm like, yeah, I can make a bottle. I'm gonna make the best bottle any baby has ever had. So I go in there, very carefully, I make this bottle and I bring it in to my wife and present it, you know, like some prize that I've won on the Serengeti, you know. I give her this bottle of 2% milk. Yeah, some of you don't even know. You don't even know yet. You would have made the same mistake. Those of you who aren't laughing, you would have made the same mistake. Mm -hmm. And I'll never forget what my wife said to me. She said, Austin, this is the dumbest thing I've ever seen you do. I thought you were smart. And I said, babe, when it comes to caring for a newborn baby, I am every bit as dumb as I look right now. And I just need you to tell me what to do. Don't test me, I'm gonna fail, right? Just tell me what to do. And so here in Romans 5, as Dave discussed last week in Romans 5, Paul, he, he does some like meta theologizing about the superabundance of grace that's been poured out on all creation through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus the Messiah. And here in chapter six, he comes down from these theological heights. He rolls up his sleeves and he just tells us what to do about it. I think you're gonna like it. Romans six, we'll start with verses one through 11. We'll, we'll be through the whole thing in the course of the sermon, but we'll start with the first 11 verses. It'll be on the screen for you as well. Paul says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin 
so that grace may increase. May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we've been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, then certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin for he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we've died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once and for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Right? Romans 6, 1 through 11. We'll start with this. So here in verse 1, Paul poses this question that he assumes his listeners will be asking themselves. Put it in front of you again. What shall we say then? Shall we persist in sin so that grace may increase? Now, Paul anticipates that his listeners will be asking themselves this question internally because what he has just said previously in chapter 5. And what he has said previously in chapter 5 is what? That a superabundance of grace has been poured out on all creation through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Paul has said that wherever sin exists, grace just abounds all the more. Paul has said that there is never a scenario in which there is more sin than grace. There is never a scenario in which there is more sin than grace. And let's let this sink in and simmer for just a moment here. Because I think it's very tempting, especially over the last 18 months, for us to think of the world as this hopelessly dark and mean and sinful place, awful place. For us to think of ourselves and others as hopelessly mean and dark and and sinful people. And while it is, of course, true that the world and every last one of us can be every one of those things and much worse, Scripture is very clear that our sin need not and, in fact, will not get the last word. Scripture is very clear that Jesus is going to get the last word. And the last word is that there is always going to be more than enough grace for everybody. There will always be more than enough grace for everybody. Now listen, I know that a lot of people in this room today have done some terrible things. I've done terrible things and I would have done more terrible things had I been given the opportunity. And I know that every last person in here has had terrible things done to them. I've done terrible things to people in this room. And without making light of any of that, I just want to remind you that Scripture says what? Scripture says that there is always more grace than sin. That in the arithmetic that constitutes the universe, however much sin there is, grace always rises to the occasion. Always and forever grace rises to the occasion. And that's good news, right? Very good news. But it brings us back to this question that Paul has just posed. Because if grace is really so unlimited, so super abundant, if grace always overcomes sin, then doesn't that least imply, you know, I mean, maybe you wouldn't say this in front of your mother, but doesn't it imply that we can kind of live however we want because we know grace always has our back? You know? Like grace always rises to the occasion and maybe you should sleep with a lot of people so there's just more grace for everybody. I'm the man for the job, right? And this is the way some people think. The technical term for thinking like this is antinomianism, right? Anti meaning antinomian meaning law. So idea is living lawlessly because we can take grace for granted. 
Right? Living lawlessly because we know that grace will bail us out. Paul was often accused of teaching antinomianism, especially by these well-meaning, very prudish Jewish Christians that we've talked about. They were in these house churches in Rome because they were still very tied to the law and they felt that Paul, you know, bless his heart, he's a good guy, he means well, but he just goes a little too far with grace. And so this is Paul responding to this accusation that he goes a little too far with grace and he doesn't make enough of obedience. Paul talks about grace too much, he doesn't talk about obedience enough. So his accusers, right, they're trying to back him into a corner with this binary question. Like, which one is it, Paul? Is it grace or obedience? You can only have one, man. Which one are you, team grace or you team obedience? And Paul, creative and very clever fellow that he was, he refuses this either or grace versus obedience frame that his opponents are trying to put around this issue. And Paul says, whoa, 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 which one is it? Like, is it grace or is it obedience? Well, yeah. It is a 100% yeah to both because I am all in on grace because you can never make too much of grace because grace always rises to the occasion. But I am also all in a 100% in on obedience. Now from here, Paul starts this discussion about baptism, right? We've been baptized with Christ. And in the background of this discussion on baptism, there's the story of the Exodus. If you've ever wondered why Christians chose baptism as the act that signifies our entrance into God's kingdom, anybody ever wondered that? Why don't we take a bath in front of everybody, you know, when we get baptized? You, you had to have wanted that. The best explanation is the Exodus. Now, you probably remember the story, but I'll give you a, a, a brief dust up on it. Hebrew people are in slavery in Egypt. God sends Moses, Pharaoh, Pharaoh, let my people go, right? They're liberated. God leads them out to the wilderness, but Pharaoh chases them, corners them against the Red Sea. And that's when something really cool happens. God parts the waters of the Red Sea. Hebrews walk through on dry land. The Egyptians try to chase after him, but the waters collapse in. And this event became known as the baptism of Israel, okay, the baptism of Israel. They go into the waters of the Red Sea, slaves to Pharaoh. They walk out the other side on dry land, servants of Yahweh. And so it's with this background in mind, this imagery of the Exodus and baptism, Paul says, look, when we are baptized into Christ, we are forgiven, but we are also more than forgiven because sin is not just a matter of guilt, but it's also a matter of enslavement. And here we come to a very interesting tension, we'll call it, within the Christian tradition. So when it comes to what sin does to us and what Jesus does for us, there have always been Christians who thought about our salvation primarily in terms of legality. Meaning, the primary thing sin does to us is it makes us guilty. Right? And so the primary thing Jesus does for us is he forgives us our debt of sin. And of course, that is all very true. It's all very biblical, but it is also incomplete because sin does more than make us guilty, doesn't it? For example, hypothetical, obviously this would never happen, but um, if I got caught embezzling money from the church, you know, and the elders stood before the church on the Sunday after, they said, church, we've got very bad news. It, Turns out Austin's been embezzling money. We should have picked up on it after the first helicopter, but it was the second one, it was a dead giveaway, and he has, in fact, been embezzling money. So we caught him and we confronted him, and, and he apologized, promised to never do it again, and so we've, we've given him his job back and keep tithing. <laughs> now, in that scenario, is, is, it really, is it really all good now that I've said I'm sorry and promised I won't do it again? Is it really all good? Hey, would you keep giving your hard-earned money 
to this church, would you keep trusting the leadership of this church to steward the souls of your children? If they had just let me get away with it, I'm sorry, and give me my job back, would it be all good? No, it wouldn't be all good because in addition to being legally guilty, the far more important problem is that I suck as a person, right? The far more important problem is sin. It's got me so twisted that I think I can take stuff that is not my stuff. And so in addition to and far above and beyond my legal problem, I got a heart problem. I got a character problem. I don't just need to be forgiven. I need to be rehabilitated. I need therapy. I am enslaved to greed and sin and selfishness, and I need to be set free. It's not just all good. All that to say, sin does more than make us guilty, which is why Jesus does more than forgive us, okay? And so in response to this accusation that Paul has made too much of grace, too little of obedience, Paul says, look, I know you mean well, but you've gotten a little too hung up on this guilt legality part of the sin equation. Because the ultimate question is not, am I guilty? But rather, who is my master? The real question you need to deal with is not, am I guilty? It's who is my master? So let's pick it back up here in verse 12. We'll now read through the rest of Romans 6, verses 12 through 23. He says, therefore... Do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. A really good principle of scripture is that the Bible does not tell us to do things that we can't do. Right? This is what Paul says. This, you can do this. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. But rather present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you for you are not under law, you're under grace. Now, what then? Shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? Right? This is that antinomian question. Paul says, may it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourself to someone as slaves for obedience, you're either slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness." I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. For when you were slaves to sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. All right, Romans 6, 12 through 23. So about 40 years ago, the two greatest songwriters of the modern age got into a fight about Jesus. This is a great story. I just learned this story the other week. Bob Dylan. Any Dylan fans in the house? Yeah, yeah. My dad, bless you. My dad raised me on Dylan. Now, Bob, obviously the greatest modern songwriter, right? And if you don't agree with that, you can see yourself out. It is a close-handed issue here at the Vista. All right, Bob, he's the greatest songwriter in the modern world. In the 70s, he, he shocked everybody. He shocked the world by becoming a Christian. 
and actually writing a, a very explicitly Christian album about it. One song in particular went on to win a Grammy Award for Song of the Year. It was in 79 or 80, I can't remember. And the song was called Gotta Serve Somebody. If you've ever been in service early and you heard me doing my mic check, I always do my mic check by reciting Bob Dylan's Gotta Serve Somebody. I give you the first verse. Here's how it goes. It says, you may be an ambassador to England or France. You may like to gamble or you may like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world or you may be a socialite with a long string of pearls, but you're gonna have to serve somebody. Oh yeah, you're gonna have to serve somebody. Now, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're gonna have to serve somebody. Isn't that good? Spicy. But you know who did not like Bob Dylan's new song about serving somebody and being a Christian? None other than the modern world's other great songwriter, Mr. Beatle himself, John Lennon. Any John Lennon fans in the house? Really? No Lennon? Oh, wow. My mom and aunt used to fight over who was going to marry Paul and who was going to marry John. So Lennon, Lennon was rather notoriously anti-religious in general, anti-Christian in particular. And so while Bob Dylan was actually a friend and mentor of sorts for John Lennon, he hated Dylan's turn toward Christianity and he hated this song. And so Lennon actually wrote a song in response to Bob Dylan's song, a song that was meant to mock and parody Dylan's song. And the song was called Serve Yourself. Now I would read you the whole song, but I really prefer to keep my job. So I'm just gonna read you the first verse. Here's what he says. <clears throat> you say you found Jesus Christ. He's the only one. You say you found Buddha sitting in the sun. You say you found Muhammad facing to the east. You say you found Krishna. That's Hindu dancing in the streets. Well, <clears throat> there's something missing in this God Almighty stew. And it's your mother. It goes at Bob Dylan's mom. You got to serve yourself. Ain't nobody going to do it for you. You got to serve yourself. Ain't nobody going to do it for you. It's pretty vicious stuff, right? This is back in the day when, when musicians fought like men over philosophy instead of who they were dating. Right? Now, I'll leave it to you to decide who won this uh, heavyweight songwriter battle. But I think it's pretty clear that the Apostle Paul would have been Team Dylan. And I think it's more than a little likely that he would have told dear John Lennon that he was a prodigiously talented songwriter, but he was a pseudo-intellectual chump of a theologian. He should probably stick to singing songs about yellow submarines and wanting to hold people's hands and leave the theology to the big boys. I know I can't say that about John Lennon because he was shot, but it's true. But in John Lennon's defense, right, in John Lennon's defense, he probably speaks for most of us, doesn't he? He speaks for me and my household. I mean, I, I think Lennon speaks for most modern people when he says, wait, time out. I got to serve somebody? No, 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 no. I don't have to serve anybody, man. I'm going to serve myself. And so when Paul says, hey, in Romans 6, look, you got two options and only two options. You can be a slave to sin or you can be a slave to God. That's what Paul says. Those are your only two options. We modern people, we hear that. And what do we do? Ooh, we don't like that very much. We get, we get very defiant. We get very, we get very flighty. We get very uncomfortable. We don't like to hear that because we don't like being told that we have to do anything. And we especially like don't be told that we have to enslave ourselves to anything because all of us are all in on this belief <clears throat> that freedom is the most important thing in the world. Every person in here believes freedom is the most important thing in the world. And freedom is doing whatever you want to do. And so here we have a bit of a collision. Do you see it? You see it happening? Between two very different understandings of freedom. Now on the one hand, we have what we might call the, uh, the modern understanding of freedom. 
understanding that everybody in this room is all in on so much so that we don't even know there's anything else. In which freedom means what? It means doing whatever you want to do. That's being free. As long as I have maximum choices, I can do whatever I want to do, I'm free. Now, on the other hand, we have what we might call the classic understanding of freedom, the understanding the Apostle Paul is clearly working with, in which freedom is not doing whatever you want to do, but rather freedom is wanting what is good. Freedom is not doing whatever you want to do. It is wanting what is good. And this is one of those instances in which I, I think we modern people got it pretty wrong. We got a lot of things right. You know, I'm glad for a car, not having to be chased by a tiger on the way to work. But I think we got this one wrong because we have vastly overestimated the value of being free to do whatever you want to do. Because what good is it to be free to do whatever you want to do if you want the wrong things? That's the modern question. What good is it for you to be free to do whatever you want to do if you haven't learned to want the right things? Because when it comes down to it, y'all, every last one of us, no matter how free we think we are, we are all slaves to our desires. Or to put it another way, what you want determines what you're going to do. And so instead of getting all hung up on exercising our rights, maybe we should be more concerned with properly curating our desires. Instead of being so obsessed with making sure that we can do whatever we want to do, maybe we should make sure that we are learning how to want what is good. For example, you know, if you, if you eat donuts for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, because you're a grown man and nobody can tell you what to do, you're not free, man. You are not free. You are a slave to unhealth and probably diabetes, if I can just be honest with you. You're not free. You're not free to do all the things healthy people can do. You're not free. Now, on the flip side, if, you, if you're just kind of thoughtful about what you eat, you practice some form of regular exercise, you don't have to be 5 a.m. flipping 18-wheeler tires with the CrossFit people. You don't have to do that, right? But just some regular form of discipline, then you are free. Free to be healthy, free to do things healthy people can do. If you're just sleeping around with everybody because you can, because you're a grown person, nobody can tell you what to do, you're not free. You're not free. You are a slave to a very understandable, we have all been there, a very understandable but twisted form of lust. You're not free. But if you get rid of all other options and you commit yourself to learning how to love and desire one person for the rest of your life, oh man, that is freedom. Because you are never less free than when you're doing whatever you want to do. You are never less free than when you're just doing whatever you want to do. Which brings us back to one final and most important question, right? How do we learn to want what is good? So let's pick it back up here in Romans 12. We're going to read Romans 6. We'll read verses 12 through 14. Paul says, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but instead present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you because you're not under law, you're under grace. And I love how simple Paul makes this. Because on the one hand, we are talking about some potentially complicated stuff. How do you make yourself want the right things? Anybody know where that button is? How do, you, how do you curate your desires? Nobody knows how to do that. It's complicated stuff. And yet Paul cuts through all the complication. He says, look, there's a lot of stuff here that is not 
under your control. And this is not an exact science. This is not math. But here's what you can do. Everybody can do this. Stop presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness and start presenting the members of your body to God as instruments of righteousness. That's what you can do. And this isn't necessarily easy. It's not easy. Okay, I'll just go ahead and say it. It's not easy. But it is simple. Right? Because you can't make yourself want what is good. You can't willpower yourself to preferring broccoli and monogamy to donuts and polygamy. Nobody's that strong. You can't do it. But God can. And so if you will do what you can do, which is present the members of your body to God, then God will do what only God can do, which is slowly but surely turn you into somebody who loves the true, the good, and the beautiful instead of all the BS imposters for which we have all settled. And again, notice when Paul says, hey, present the members of your body to God. It is so important because here's how you could get all this and then miss it right here. When Paul says present the members of your body to God, it is so important that you not get all spiritual and metaphorical about what he is saying. Because when Paul says present the members of your body to God, he literally means present your body to God, your hands, your feet, your eyes, your feet, all of it, because, and this is so important, God uses our body to change our heart. God uses our body to change our heart. Somewhere along the way, I don't know where exactly it happened, but many of us bought into what I would call a very overly spiritualized spirituality. Wherein we came to believe that following Jesus was primarily a matter of what we thought in our heads and believed in our hearts and not what we did with our bodies. And as a result, we have vastly overestimated our ability to think and believe ourselves into Christ's likeness. Some of you, you've been trying to think and believe your way into Christ's likeness your whole life. And how's it working for you? Not very good, because while we always put the emphasis on thinking and believing, I think the right things, I believe the right things, Scripture always put an equal emphasis on doing, again, because God uses our body to change our heart. You got to do these things. To believe something means what? It means you act like it's true. Not you think it's true, you act like it's true. And hopefully you've heard us talk about this ad nauseum. But our vista rule of life, right, it is a set of four very simple daily and weekly habits, prayer, scripture, meals, technology, Sabbath, kind interaction with a stranger, time with the vulnerable and underprivileged, and you invite somebody to church. Four very easy and simple daily and weekly habits. And these habits are designed, y'all, to help you present the members of your body to God. And what I love about all these habits is how stone cold actionable they are. You notice there's nothing in there about like thinking or believing. Sit around and think, blah, 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 blah. No, no, no. These are all things we are telling you to do. Pray these prayers with your vocal cords. Put down your stupid phone at meals and look at another human being in the eyes. Right? Put your hand out, shake somebody's hand. You invite them to church. Right? You do what only you can do. And then you trust God to do what only God can do. Stop giving your body over to actions and habits that you know are creating anxiety and apathy and selfishness and start giving your body over to actions and habits that will give God the time and space to create generosity, passion, and peace in your heart. And if the Protestant in you, okay, is getting a little bit uncomfortable right now, there's a lot of talk about works. It sounds very Catholic, Austin. If that's you, you know, we process, we don't do things, we just believe the right things, right? If that is you, then I would like to remind you the words of the great Protestant philosopher Dallas Willard, that grace is opposed to earning. It ain't opposed to effort, okay? Grace is opposed to earning, it's not opposed to effort. In fact, grace will demand all of your effort 
because you got to serve somebody. I promise you don't want it to be yourself. I've spent most of my life serving myself. You don't want it to be yourself. And so submit your body to the discipline required to help you become fully and freely mastered by Christ. Because that and not doing whatever you want to do is freedom. Let's pray together. Gracious God, thank you for today. We do not deserve to be here. We are not entitled to the breath in our lungs, the food in our bellies, the friends or family members around us, and we just remember that this morning. We also pause and remember this good news that Paul has proclaimed that wherever sin abounds, grace just rises to the occasion and abounds all the more, that there is always more than enough grace for everybody. And there are a lot of bodies in this room this morning that need to hear that and believe it. Then we also confess that this doesn't give us an excuse to just do whatever we want to do because we want to be free. I want to be free, and that's why we don't want to just do whatever we want to do. We want to be liberated to be servants of Christ. We want to learn to love and want what is good. We want to be what we were made for because that's freedom, not doing whatever we want to do. So, Lord Jesus, we pray that today, this week, you might work that a little deeper into our hearts, that we might... Stop being so concerned with exercising our rights and more concerned with submitting ourselves to Christ Jesus. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.